Hear the word of the Lord. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come and I have no food to offer him. And suppose that the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door is already locked, my children and I are in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of your friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we've been going through Acts for quite a few weeks. We're taking a little break here. Sometimes I just have to listen to the Spirit and go, I am not going to teach this passage this week. This is not the passage for this week. And I looked at the next passage and I said, nope, not teaching it. We need to think more about asking. We need to think more about what we talked about at the end of last week, to be asking people. What does it look like to ask? We've talked about moving from pain to joy. We've talked about healing, growth, expansive thinking. We've talked about heeding a call and having like a 180 transformation of our life, as we saw in Paul. And we've talked about what it means to develop a new identity in Christ. And what we saw Saul do when he formed his new identity is he said, who are you, Lord? Who are you? I thought I knew who you were. And this is Jesus, not Yahweh. And he's divine. And he's appearing to me. Who are you, God? Like, I need to know. And I thought about this illustration. I'm, you know, we're, as I've talked about, we're doing this marriage class. And one of the things in marriage is as you go through iter- like seasons of your marriage, you find you're married to a different person, right? Seven years, it's like you're a whole new different person. You go through these cycles and you wake up and you realize, I don't know you. Like, I need to get to know you. And in the case of God, it may not be exactly like that because he does not change, right? But we are changing. And as we go through our journey and as we heed his plan, as we do things like, hey, we might start, we get baptized. We say, hey, I know you, Jesus. I know who you are. I know what you're like. You're like this. And we follow that calling and we follow that Jesus and we learn about him. And then he reveals himself to us. And we go, what? 
I didn't realize I was married to you. Oh, and the, the reality is it can be a little disconcerting, but it's always more wonderful at the same time because you're getting to the truer sense of who Jesus is. He is not changing. But because of who now I am, Lord, who are you to me? How do I respond? Maybe we go through the Jesus of our youth, the Jesus of our adolescence, the Jesus of our legalistic period, whatever it is, and we say, I know this Jesus, I'm going to tell everybody about this Jesus. But there's a moment where we have to kind of say, well, the real Jesus, please stand. Right? Can I really know who the real Jesus is? We meet somebody who really is on fire for Christ, and we go, I don't even know if I know Jesus. Like, you're just joyful. I want that joy. And it doesn't mean that we don't know Christ. It just means that we are always continually in this phase of asking, who are you, Lord? Who are you today? And how we think of him, who we think he is, will impact then how we relate to him, which is what this text is talking about. When I speak to my boss at work after I fail an assignment or a project or I'm late to a meeting, my boss hasn't necessarily changed, but the way I interact with him is totally different. Why? Because of who I think I am. I relate differently. When I've succeeded, when I've blown away the competition, when I've made the sales quota and gone above and beyond in the talk of the office, I might get carried away with my own reputation I might even be dismissive of my boss, knowing he will probably cut me some slack and realize like this guy's flying high right now. But he's the same boss in that day. I am just different. It's me who changes in those situations. And so I need to understand the character of God is unchanging, as we talked about in the song this morning, that song Anchor, Unchanging One. So that I can then understand, okay, how am I relating to you, unchanging one? Who are you? I know who you are. You're a good father. Now tell me about me. Why am I starting out with this, with this text? Because in this text, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And we all know that section, the Lord's Prayer. We've recited, we've, a lot of us have memorized that. But then what he goes on and spends far more words on is to talk about the character of the God we're praying to. Talking about the person that we are asking. And once we can understand the fullness of who we're talking to, then how Jesus instructs us will make more sense. It will lead us to more assurance, more confidence, and more hope in our prayer. But I think prayer is even bigger than words. God, I feel like, has been expanding my sense of prayer lately, realizing that each of our lives is lived out as a prayer. Every action we take as a Christian is a prayer. You are living a prayer in your life as a response to God's call on your life. He has called you into faith. You have said, I believe. And now every action you make, every thought you have, is your conversation, your response to his calling. This, this idea of calling can be really confusing. 
for a Christian. I think a lot of times we can believe we had one calling and then find out that may not be the case. We can be very reductionist in the way we think about this. Oh, give me the algorithm, plug me in, that's me. That's what I do in this situation. Thank you, God, for needing me to fill that gap. He goes, you don't fill any gaps for me. I fill all the gaps, right? But I'm still calling you to participate. And so we spend our lives, I think, searching. What, God, would you like me to do now? Maybe some of you say, I have no idea what my calling is. I do stuff, I wake up in the day, but I don't know what my calling is. Maybe some of you say, I've already found my calling. I know what it is that I need to do in the kingdom. And to that, I just say, ask. He's calling all of us deeper. Ask. He's calling you into a new season right now. He's asking you to hold your current calling lightly. For he is the one who leads you. So keep listening. Some of the aspects of our calling, if you're unfamiliar with this term, I'll just run through a few things so you can start to think about, what is it, God? What is it that you're asking me to do right now? When God calls us, we must be obedient. It's an essential part of any calling. There is no sin taken to find a calling. We will never be asked to sin to lead in our calling. In heeding a calling, it's my experience, it's experience of others that I've read, Something in you comes alive. God is in this for wholeness, for you and for him. He is not calling you to abject misery and unfulfillment. The Christian life is about a journey to wholeness. Something in you will come alive. This does not mean there's not a struggle. It means that you will feel the fullness of the Spirit as you come into your calling. Often there is a confirmation from others on the impact and the fruit. Any of you have this happen? You start to step out into something. No sooner have you stepped out than somebody goes, man, you've really grown, right? Man, I see you. Thank you, right? We step out and we get confirmations of that impact and the fruit. Even if we can't see it ourselves, we start to see it through the eyes of others, Sometimes we just have to step out in total faith in that, by the way, and just be like, you see it? I don't see it yet, but okay, I'm going to keep going because this is so foreign to me, right? Often you will experience God's peace more and more as you enter into his calling for you. And though callings will many times benefit us, they may produce income, they may produce affirmations, they may provide social homes for us. They may provide an outlet for our giftings. They will always result in God being glorified. They will always result in God being glorified. If we do not send up the results of that affirmation to God and thanks, we're stopping that flow. That is a sin action to say, I am glorified. No, he is glorified. So, Right there, that peace in the calling where you go, I am glorified. Right there in that peace where you say, I'm going to sin to find my client. I want this thing for me now. We begin to fall into rebellion. And all of us have been there. All, have, all of us have been there at different stages of the Christian life where we say, I want this. I want to be part of this community, maybe. I like what I see and I want to be that person. I set a goal for myself. 
Or I just say, I want that joy that you have. I want that thing. Get me in there. We heed God's call in our life. And then we step in and we go, God, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know why you're stretching me this way. I feel like retreating, running, fighting, or defending who I was, right? Let's just, let's just rewind the tape, God. This is too intense. I don't want to be a new parent. This is too intense. I don't want to have moved. This is too intense, right? I don't, just get me back to how it was before. It was more comfortable than this because this is the unknown. Because who you want me to be, God, is scary without you. Now, you might not say the without you line, but when you are in that place of fear, stepping out into the calling, I guarantee you what you are feeling is that God's left me out in the boat. He's left me out here alone. He has called me into something, and he said, you got it. And he's gone and done something else. And I'm stuck here in the wilderness. God has left me out here. God, because you want what you want me to be is scary without you. Without you. As if the Father will leave us and abandon us. But how often do we delude ourselves to that? When we start in this asking process, we need to ask ourselves, do we really believe that the Father is with us all the time. As Psalm 139 said this morning, that you are with me in the depths of Sheol and in the heights of heaven. In my lowest of lows and my highest of highs, you are with me, God. Or do I think you abandon me? If we listen to the abandoning voice and we start to play that on repeat or we start to like that tune more than God's, we will start to become fatalistic. We will start to spiral. And that's dead end thinking. Now, to get us into this text a little bit, I want to read a story around it. And we're going to maneuver through with this story. This is Mark 5. And this is the story of the man that's infested with demons. And the demons are named Legion, if you're familiar with the story. Jesus had stepped out of the boat. This is Mark 5, verse 2. Immediately there he met him, there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Now, I don't know if you've ever read this text identifying with the demon-possessed man. I certainly don't think I have. I think I've generally read this and man, that would suck. <laughs> right? Anyone that has fallen to addiction, Anyone that has fallen to the addiction to power, pornography, drugs, alcohol, anger, jealousy, an addiction to people-pleasing, anyone that's, that's fallen to a true addiction will find themselves like this demon-possessed man. They will find themselves among the tombstones. They will find themselves uncontrollably strong in their confusion. Nobody can talk sense into them. 
they, they can't be held. They're just wild, chaotic beings. And they will be crying out and cutting themselves with stones. But here's what's amazing. The power of Jesus when he enters the scene moves and changes the body of the demon-possessed man, even though the demons themselves are still alive and well and tormenting him. He just has to bring his body. He just wants it to change. Because if you've ever been in that situation, you want it to change. You just don't know how. And so when Jesus shows up, he saw Jesus from afar. He ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, the body is doing one thing and the voice is doing another thing. The body of the man is the true deep self of this man saying, I, I want you, Jesus. But the mind and the voice say, you are a tormentor. There's a schizophrenic quality to somebody that falls into this level of possession, depravity, mental illness, addiction, whatever you want to call it. Where on one part, one part of their being says, heal me. And another part of their being says, nothing can. And Jesus, the idea that you could, even though I know you can't, torments me. Get away from me. If we have God wrong, then God's call is not an invitation to wholeness. It's actually torment. And if you've been in a position in your Christian walk where things have gotten hard, things have maybe gotten dark, and things have gotten really painful, you may look at God and say, God, you just torment me. You're just tormenting me because you promise all these things, but it's not happening. And we start to lose a sense of who the good father is because we're possessed by the voices of demons. And we start to believe a lie of who he is. This can have so many manifestations. In the story, it says, for he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are men. And he begged him earnestly, do not send them out of the country. My name is Legion, for we are many. There's so many different ways we can go than Jesus. There's Legion, but there's only one Jesus. But if we've given up on any expectation, if we've lost hope, then we won't ask for the true Jesus because we're afraid of torment. Can't we resonate with that? Or maybe you have friends where you can resonate, where they say, look, I like all of it. I just can't get into the Jesus part. Look, I, I think it's a great community. I love that you go to worship. Yeah, I, I would even go to church. I like coffee. I like singing. But I just can't get by this exclusive Jesus thing. There's many paths, right? We, this is a city where we know that that's the narrative. But there's not. There's legion of paths to demonic possession. There's legions of paths to unhealth. There's legions of paths to the suicidal soul. But there is only one Jesus. And in order to find a Jesus, he has to come and show up. And you have to come and see, and he will show up, that he is the good, good father. Verse 15, and Jesus came to him and saw the demon-possessed man 
This is after he has cast out the demons into the pigs, right? And they run into the, the sea. <clears throat> Jesus came and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And the crowds were afraid of the power, the incredible power. This man went from being living in the graveyard, cutting himself and screaming out, being uncontrollable, to sitting clothed and being in his righteous mind. To be in the righteous mind is to see Jesus clearly, to see Jesus clearly. And to be in the righteous mind is the place that we need to be in order to pray. And that's what this text is about. So hopefully that helps you set into this a little bit with some sense of story. Because so we can read this as like an instruction manual sometimes. Okay, this is the words I pray, right? But if we don't have the character of God, and if we don't see that we need to be in our righteous mind to pray that we are praying, we are believing in the true Jesus, the wounded healer, the divine king, the wise father, the suffering servant. If we don't see all of those things and we don't know who we're praying to, none of this will do anything because we are not living in faith to the one who gives life. Okay, so we've gotten ourselves positioned in the right way. Now, what is it that we shall do in that position? What is it that Jesus instructs? I can teach 20 sermons on the Lord's Prayer. So we're not going to be able to go through everything. But I want to look at a few things. First of all, we start with Father. We'll get back to that. We've already talked about that a little bit. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. I was reading about a pastor named Mark Batterson in D.C., and he, he has really catchy ways of describing things that are very practical and helpful. And he says, live your life in day-sized containers. I've used that like multiple times this week, talking to people. Don't live out there in the future in worry, anxiety about what's gonna come. Don't live in the past, live in day-sized containers. Part of Jesus's ministry was to release his people from anxiety. Jesus can handle tomorrow. The daily bread in this text is manna. But this is daily bread. It's manna in the wilderness. It falls from heaven. It's provided by God, even when it shouldn't be there, even when there's no sensibility, even when you haven't strategized for it to be there, it will be there because he provides it from heaven in the wilderness. Give us our daily bread. I trust you to give me my daily bread. Give me fuel and nourishment and provision. Then it says, forgive us our sins. That gets us out of yesterday. Forgive us our sins gets us out of regret, guilt, shame. So you see how we're, we're being provided for in the present. We're getting out of the past. And this is lead us not into temptation. That's the future. In some ways, this text gets us then out of the future. I can trust you, God, to lead me out of a future in which I will fall out of your grace, which I will fall off of your path. If I just trust you and live each moment in Christ, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, then it's like a metronome, right? A metronome goes tick, 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 tick. If we're just living in that tick, keeping time with God, in exactly what he asks and exactly the way he asks. We don't know 
what songs being played around us. We don't know what's happening. We just know that our job, fruits of the Spirit, our job, faith, trust, our job. And so we have to then get out of the outcomes. If we're so attached to the outcomes, then we will try and bend his will to ours. But no, we are here to be like him, a metronome, steady rhythm. Because God is our anchor. So have you ever thought about these first few lines as God centering us in the present moment? I mean, when I look at this, I go, wow, he really is bringing me into the present because that's where I live in him. I don't live with him in my past fears. I don't live with him in the future worries. I live with him right now. And then he talks about this friend at the night. Now he's going to the character. And it's kind of interesting. He goes, you know, he says, he will not give you the bread because of friendship. Well, I mean, I would think God is my friend, right? It's it's not that he's not your friend. He won't give you the, the bread out of friendship. He'll give it out of shameless audacity as much as you need. Shameless audacity. Well, why is this guy asking for bread in the first place? Lend me three loaves of bread. I think we jump to conclusions right away. I need bread. Give me my daily bread. This is my bread. No. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. This is an oasis culture if you've ever been to the Middle East, right? It's an honor culture. If you don't have and are not prepared to take care of the person who comes to your door, that's very dishonorable, right? So this man was going to be dishonored. He wasn't going to die. He was going to be dishonored in being the kind of person that he knew he needed to be. And he came to his friend and he says, you don't understand, like, this, this, is, this is actually a little bit selfishly motivated here. I, I want to be a man of honor. And I actually have my pants on. Like, I actually am not ready. I actually don't have a pantry with food in it. And I know I should, and I know I don't, and I know better, God, but can you just, can you just spot me? That's the shameless audacity. See, the the friend has to come and he has to say, I am in complete need of you, God. Like, I have to just admit, like, everyone on my block has food in their pantry for a guy to come stay tonight, but I don't. I haven't been living well. I haven't been prepared. I haven't done the right things. And he will surely get up. The friend will surely give up, get up and give you as much as you need. So long as we're not afraid of that shameless audacity. That persistence, that almost foolish level of need. God, I need you to show up today, not because I'm so great, because I've blown it. But God, I want you. I'm going to ask for you to help me. A, a good illustration would be if any of you have ever asked your parents for a loan, like if you've ever just been like, I need something, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, I don't know, lots. They don't always offer the loan, do they? They don't just like watch and go like, hey, we need some money. But if you come up and ask and they are set up to provide for you what you need and you are honestly dependent and you are seeking help, and they know that you need it, 
then they will give it to you. That's what he says. Surely, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. And then he goes through this very well-known verse in 9 and 10, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you for everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Let's take this back to our case study on calling. Maybe maybe you're questioning some purpose right now. Maybe you're questioning what you should do with your time. Maybe you find that when you lay in bed at night or sit in a dull moment, there's a feeling, a sense of listlessness. What would it mean to ask God in that moment? What would it mean to ask God instead of asking something else? Because I think a lot of times we are asking, we're asking people, we're always asking. Hey phone, what can you give me? Hey Netflix, what can you give me? Hey Jack in the Box, what can you give me? Like we are always asking for food. We're always asking for direction. Hey friend, how can you encourage me? You know, I'm not super intuitive with how people use language, but the other day I realized like people bait you into compliments, right? Oh, I just look so awful today. No, no, you look great. Oh, thanks. Right? Like, you know, like the, the, we're always asking with everything we do, there's an ask to fill. Are you asking the Father who guarantees you that you will receive? See, the world can withhold, the world will withhold when you ask me. But are you asking from the Father? And then are you seeking? Now, how is seeking different than asking? Sometimes these feel the same to me. Well, first of all, where's my target? Who am I asking? I'm asking the Lord. Now, seeking means putting one step in front of the other. That's living the ask. That is saying, I've asked, and now I'm going to walk in faith, and I'm going to try this on for size. So for, for, for our conversation about calling, I'm stepping out into something I've asked. There's been some sort of reception to that ask. I'm now being called into an action. I'm going to participate. I've been asked to read scripture up front of citizens. I'm going to do it even though I don't like public reading. I've been asked to participate in music. I'm going to play music even though it freaks me out. I've been asked to participate in an outreach ministry. We're going to go pick up trash in a couple of weeks. I don't know if I want to go do that. I don't know if I'm going to just step out and try. There are so many different ways just within our community that we can do this, but then of course your life is much more expansive. There are ways in your work where you're taking on a new role. There are things that are changing in your home life where you're having to think about how you use your time differently. There's things about your budgets that are changing. Every way that we're being, we gotta ask God and say, what are you calling me to do? And then begin to step into that. And then to knock, to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, I often thought that knocking was this action step, but as I was reading it, I was like, no, what happens when a door opens? Like, what happens when you knock and a door opens? You see the next room when the door opens. I, I think in some ways, the knocking will be the opening to the next thing. Knock and the door will be opened to you. We'll be, we will be opened to a relationship, to a true 
loving and not condemning God. We will, we will now have a, a, a different view of him. We will now have a different view of our lives. When doors are opened, we now realize when we wake up the next day, when we have that conversation, we step out of it and we go, my life is almost totally different because a door just opened. Maybe it was a door in my understanding. Maybe it was a door in what I'm asked to do and now I have a new opportunity, a new responsibility. When, when you have a kid, a door opens. And a bunch of doors closed too, right? When you have a kid, it's like, this is now uh, an opportunity, a responsibility. Uh, it's a thing I'm through the door. I, I like can't go back out the door, right? But, but this happens all throughout our life. That's an obvious example, but there's so many ways that we knock and the door will be opened. That whole process, I think, is just very cyclical. We're asking, we're seeking, we're knocking. We're asking, we're seeking, we're knocking. We're living life with Jesus's instructions to exclusively pursue him so that we don't have the life of the demoniac who's cutting himself in the graveyard. And he doesn't promise that we will see everything. He says, you will live in day-sized containers and I will provide manna for you in the wilderness. And this is what it means to be in the kingdom. And this is what it means to be a child of God. There's a few passages I want to look at here because what that really then gets us down to, the real crux of this, is faith and trust. Like for me this week, when I sat down and I go, gosh, I'm going to live in these day-sized containers. I'm going to do what you've given me to do today. I'm going to rest at night and release it to you, God, because I can't live past, present, future as I'm trying to fall asleep. I have to live right now, and I have to release it to a benevolent father and say, you more than me, I need rest. Right? You gave me a body. I'm tired. Release. That requires faith. That requires trust. It requires humility. I am not enough for all the things. I can't do them all. I can't get them all done. I have to practice faith. So I want to read two other miracle stories just shortly. I won't elaborate on them too much because I think the Spirit will do its work. And I want to be sensitive to time. But Mark chapter 9, if you have a Bible, verses 21 through 29. And Jesus asked his father, this is a, to a boy that has an unclean spirit, and Jesus is coming to heal. And he asked the father of the boy, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible. Sorry, I just lost my place with this tiny type. Um, <clears throat> all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I condemn you. Come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. 
But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now the disciples knew how to pray. So what's going on? Prayer is more than just the words. Prayer is faith and trust in the good Father to do the work. Let's look at another one. Mark 10, 48 through 52. And many rebuked him. This is uh, about blind Bartimaeus, a blind beggar that Jesus approaches. And he's calling out to Jesus. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Here's his ask, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on his way. Your faith has made you well. Now, we may not have a blindness that's cured by the request to sight in a physical sense. But the statement there that is about prayer, that is about faith and trust, is your faith has made you well. And that is how, no matter where we are in life, if we ask to the good Father and we leave it with him, and we continue to seek and knock and ask and seek and knock. That in that faith and in that trust, we will become whole. We can trust him to bring us into wholeness. David is totally my man. Some of you probably totally agree with that. They go, yeah, the Psalms, man. This is the Psalms is where I go. And he can be so vulnerable and so real and so honest and so transparent about his process. And it becomes like his testimony. In Psalm 30, he basically gives his testimony. Let's just read it for a second here. I'm going to read from the message translation. I love the way it just makes it so accessible. It says, I give you all the credit, God. You got me out of that mess. You didn't let my foes gloat. God, my God, I yelled for help and you put me together. God, you pulled me out of the grave, gave me another chance at life when I was down and out. All you saints, sing your hearts out to God. Thank him to his face. He gets angry once in a while, but across a lifetime, there is only love. The nights of crying your eyes out give ways to days of laughter. When things were going great, I crowed, I got it made. I'm God's favorite. He made me king of the mountain. Then you looked the other way and I fell to pieces. I called out to you, God. I laid my case before you. Can you sell me for a profit when I'm dead? Auction me off at a cemetery yard sale. And here's the turning point. When I'm dust to dust, my songs and stories you won't sell. So listen and be kind. There's an ask. Help me out of this. You did it. You changed wild lament into whirling dance. You ripped off my black mourning band and decked me with wildflowers. I'm about to burst with song. I can't keep quiet about you. God, my God, I can't thank you enough. That's his testimony. 
What happens to the demon-possessed man at the end of the story of Mark 5? Jesus was getting into the boat, and the man who was possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The asking, seeking, knocking process, the living toward the good, good Father, will bring out of our life a story that is empirically worthwhile. There's just no, you can't argue with it. I know this. I, I was on the phone with a friend of mine who's a teacher in the Midwest, and, and I said, man, my story is, I'm starting to realize what my story is. And I told him some of my story in pain. I said, I've gone through these various addictions, and I've gone through these problems with anger, and I've gone through these struggles with pornography, and I've gone through these things, and I know that this is part of my story, but it hurts so much, it's so shameful to say them to people. But I know that God is sanctifying me in this process through these struggles, and I know that he is bringing me into wholeness, and he goes, John, he goes, that ministers to me when you said that. He wrote me a text later, he says, that is a ministry, just saying what God has brought you through to bring you to wholeness. That is where God will lead us in our story. So in the pain, this is not to silver line the pain. In the pain, realize that you are in the process of transformation. And it will be your testimony. And your testimony is uniquely yours. And it will be good for those you share to. And you can't predict how. You can't predict how. So you've got to just step and ask and wait for those doors to be opened and know that he will refine all of us in that scary vulnerability of sharing that scary thing and being like, I am broken. Maybe not even like you. I might be more broken than you, right? But I'm going to say it and get it out there and show you that God is redeeming me. Remember, he says, if he hears, will he give his children a piece of bread or a scorpion? God is trustworthy to save. I'm going to wrap up here. Just a couple things as we think about how to move forward. Okay, maybe I'm rethinking my testimony a little bit. Maybe I'm thinking, what is my story that I can share? Maybe I've been ducking when people ask me. And maybe there is a lot that I've been through that I can talk about. There's another piece here which is, if I can trust God in the little things, why am I having such a hard time trusting the big things? If I can trust him in the near things, why am I having such a hard time trusting him in the far things? If when I ask God for a problem and he solves it today, why do I think he can't solve the one in the future that I'm worried about? I, I do some consulting work during the week to augment the pastorate, and one of the things I do is some website maintenance. And actually, I want to get out of it. I'm not very good at it. And I said yes to this job, and I went in, and I... And I I shouldn't have done what I did, and I clicked the wrong button. We've all been there. Clicked the wrong button, the thing blew up. And I just had that like feeling in my heart of panic, right? Of like, I broke someone else's thing, I don't know how to fix it, they're paying me, like I should not, why did I take this on? Right, it's just total spiral, right? Total spiral. High heart rate, sweaty palms, and I'm just like, God, help me out. Right, it's just the most pathetic, shameless audacity. Like, God, I shouldn't have been here in the first place, help me out. And he did, and he fixed it. 
And then I've got other stuff where I'm going, I don't know what you're going to do with my family. I don't know what you're going to do with my life in a year. God, I'm freaking out. I'm laying in bed awake at night. He goes, I solved the near thing for you. I solved it. Don't you think I can solve the far thing? In the Old Testament, the prophets were known to be true prophets because they would prophesy things both near and far. The near things were like going to happen in the next week, day, year, and they get proven true. And at the same time, they're prophesying far things. And what's happening is when God's confirming the near things, he's saying they're trustworthy for the far things. We have a God who will take care of today so that we can trust him to take care of the future. I just want to close by reading the serenity prayer. This has been a helpful prayer. Um, If you don't think of the Lord's prayer as seating you in the present, see how this matches up and realize that you have tools here if you struggle with anxiety, if you struggle with these, um, just these difficulties of not being present. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can. And wisdom to know the difference. Heard this, any of us that are familiar with AA or these different places where this is used. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, Accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. What a calming, calming prayer. Let's pray.